The following episode contains explicit language and may not be suitable for all listeners. Produced by the iLab at WBUR, Boston. Are you guys ready for your next comment? Are you guys ready for your next comment? Miss Pat Lavinia! It's Friday night at Morty's Comedy Joint, and this club inside an Indianapolis strip mall isn't exactly thumping. But then a 45-year-old comedian known as Miss Pat takes the stage, and pretty darn quickly you realize Miss Pat is not going to let the meager crowd slow her down. She opens with a bit about how she recently lost 100 pounds. But I tell you, since I've been losing weight this time, I discovered something about my body that I never noticed before. Y'all, I had no clue. I had no clue, y'all, that I had hair in my ass. I'm sorry, just a Christy crowd, did I go too far? This kind of in-your-face personal material is Miss Pat's trademark. But when I say in-your-face personal material, I don't just mean jokes about body hair. Miss Pat often references her complicated past, like she does in this bit about her oldest daughter, who is gay. She's going to tell me, Tom, Mom, you're always making gay jokes about me. I can't wait to put you in the old folks' home. Like, Child, we are 12 years apart. Give you a couple minutes on that one, white people. We're gonna be in that bitch together. It's funny, right? But the thing about Miss Pat's story, if you don't laugh about it, you could very well cry. Not only did Miss Pat grow up sleeping on the floor poor in the heart of Atlanta, she spent her earliest years surrounded by drunks, druggies, and abusers. By age 15, she had two children. By 18, she was behind bars for selling crack. But fast forward to now, and Miss Pat, or Patricia Williams as she's officially known, has crushed it on NBC's last comic standing. I've been shot two times and hit by a dump truck. Nobody cares who shot me. They're like, who hit you with a dump truck? She's dished with Mark Marin on WTF. So, Miss Pat, I, I guess I'm the last podcaster to get you. How many have you done now? You've done everybody's? Just about everybody. I've done all the good ones. How about that? Oh, that's good. That's good. I don't she's know also published a critically acclaimed memoir. And now she's partnering with Lee Daniels, the guy who directed Precious and The Butler and co-created the TV hit Empire on a new autobiographical sitcom. Daniels calls Miss Pat the Black Roseanne. I saw her stand-up act and I was in tears. I'd never seen anything like it. Her voice was the voice of most black women that I knew. And yet she had overcome so many obstacles and was able to laugh about it and able to make something good out of her life. And to me, that's an American hero. She's the American dream. I'm Washington Post national arts reporter Jeff Edgers. And from The Post and WBUR in Boston, this is Edge of Fame, a podcast about the life that happens before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Today, we're heading to Indiana to hang out with Patricia Williams, a.k.a. Miss Pat, possibly the funniest convicted felon you'll ever meet. How you doing there? How you doing? Hi there. 
I, for one, meet Miss Pat at her house in the Indianapolis suburbs. Jeff, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Outside Miss Pat's six-bedroom, four-bathroom house in this sprawling subdivision, it's all manicured yards and man-made ponds. But inside the house? You cannot. You you turn the TV down, please. Why? The TV ain't loud. Why are you yelling at? Don't be raising your voice with your stupid self. Why? Yo, this, this show whack anyway. It's a blueprint for a sitcom, and nobody's acting. You have Miss Pat and her husband, Garrett, head perpetually in his hands, resigned smile telling you he knows this place is nuts, but he wouldn't have it any other way. You got their two kids, 17-year-old Garrett Jr. and 19-year-old Gariana. Then you've got, count them, four more kids, from three years old to eight. The kid's birth mother is Miss Pat's niece, a drug addict who's been missing for two years. Miss Pat scooped the kids up and got custody. I have this thing where my husband tell me, you can't save the world. If it's a kid, it just melts my heart because I was that kid. And I always think about what I went through. Nobody wants to grow up and have the fucking memories that I, I have. It all began in Atlanta, where she was born Patricia Williams in 1972. Everybody called her Rabbit, which is the title of her just-published memoir. She and her sister were raised by their mother, Mildred, a hard-drinking, pot-smoking abuser who was dead by 40. As Miss Pat explains as we drive around town in her car, when she was little, she vowed that when she grew up, she'd never be anything like her mother. She used to have us like cigarettes when we were young. Oh, God, I had to be maybe six, five or six, when I was lighting her cigarettes on the stove. And I would get so mad, so I was like... Why is she telling me to light her cigarette? I'm a kid. And my sister would light her cigarette just If only that was it. Patricia's grandfather peddled moonshine in a so-called liquor house, which was actually the front room of the Atlanta home she shared with nearly a dozen relatives. And once the liquor house was brimming with intoxicated patrons, Mildred would direct her daughters to dance. They would put on music. My mom would clear the floor and be like, my kids, my baby's about to cut a rug. And we'd be dancing and you got the old men looking at us, shaking our asses. And my sister would hit splits and I'd be sitting there like a sour face. And, you, and you were how old right at that point? Probably seven. And your sister is probably what, nine? Yeah, nine. And these creepy drunk old men are looking at you not like you're seven or nine? No. Because they would be like, shake that ass. Who tell a seven-year-old to shake that ass? Like, Jesus Christ. I mean, when you looked at it back then, it was normal. But when I look at it now, that crap is not normal. Before long, both girls had been sexually abused by a neighborhood man who had befriended Mildred. Keep your mouth shut, he told them, or you'll get beat. They kept quiet. It's no surprise that when Daryl Lay walked in, not long after, Patricia was hooked. She was 12. He was 19. She lied and told them she was 18. He lied and didn't mention his wife. Daryl would go on to father Patricia's first two kids. She had Ashley when she was 14 and Nakia when she was 15. The age of consent, 16. And how much did the police or anybody care? Both birth certificates clearly stated Patricia's real age, and Daryl's too. Yeah, but, you know... Back at Miss Pat's house, as she slices sausages into a sizzling frying pan for dinner, 
she points out just how messed up the whole thing was. And I was 14 and he signed a key birth certificate and nobody questioned him. In 1986, when I gave birth to this black kid and I was 14 years old, if I was white, would somebody have stepped in? If you had been 15 and, and he had been 18 and you were white, he would be in prison. Thank you. Nobody cared. And not only did he sign one birth certificate, he signed two birth certificates. Daryl and Patricia's relationship was tumultuous, full of psychological and physical abuse. Back in Patricia's car, she remembers when Daryl smacked her in the head with a gun, a gun that wound up going off. You know, he hit me and the pistol cracked my skull. I was 15 at the time. I got shot two times in the same year. That was a rough year for me. That gun went off by mistake, he said? He said, I don't know, but it punched a nice hole and cracked my skull. Daryl's 52 now with a long list of convictions for drug and weapon offenses. Although Miss Pat tells me it'll complicate things if I reach out to him for an interview, I want him to explain where his head was at all those years ago. But when I call him up... Hello? Hey, Daryl, this is uh, uh, Jeff Edgers, a guy for the Washington Post. Huh? The conversation doesn't go very far. Forgive the sound, but I called him on his cell when he was driving around. I mentioned that Miss Pat writes about him in her memoir. Daryl says he hasn't read the book, but he complains that it only gives one side of the story. When I ask him about the gun incident, he gets defensive. She writes that he shot her. Well, did she mention that she shot him? But the motherfucker shot me on Bankhead at a damn car shop place. She put that in the book. No, she didn't. And then, that... went, to the, and then, and then went to the house, I got a cash formula. I'll come out the house, and then she broke my goddamn cash, and I had to go back in out there and get another cash formula. She put that in the book. She did not put that in the book. But when I asked Daryl about something Patricia most definitely did put in the book, namely that Daryl was a 21-year-old having sex with a 14-year-old, and does he regret that now, he hangs up on me. And when I call him back... Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Patricia left Daryl when she was 21. By this time, he hadn't just given her a daughter and son. Daryl had given her a whole new way to make ends meet selling crack. And as she explains to me while we cruise around town, one of Patricia's traps, the corner where she regularly sold drugs, was mere feet from her daughter Ashley's elementary school. And she would come out to school and say stuff like, um, could you please stop selling drugs in front of my school? And I'm like, why? She said, because I get tired of looking out the window seeing you sell drugs in front of my school. And I remember I was so ignorant. I said, look, child, I was here first. (laughs) This is my job. I was here first. Patricia can laugh at it now. In a way, she has to. Back at the house, even her daughter Ashley laughs when she describes what it was like for her and her brother, Nakia, when they were growing up. I think I just mostly remember us having to run a lot, and he runs really slow. And (laughs) I know, but he was holding me back from running from the bullets. And it was just always, she was getting into stuff a lot. Selling drugs and, like, and people shooting at her or her fighting and stuff like that. And Patricia says she never did drugs, but when she was 18, her dealing won her a year in jail. When she got out, she was still dealing, still struggling to survive. Then, in 1993, at a lip-sync contest at an Atlanta nightclub, she met her future husband, Garrett. The Gulf War veteran had a legit job as a machinist in a 401k. 
He grew up maybe five miles away from where Miss Pat did, but he'd never seen anything like the world that she grew up in. When I talk with Garrett, the whole family's over at the house. As everyone chows down on food, Garrett tells me he was especially drawn to the way Patricia made people laugh. You always had a good time around her. Like when I used to bring around my family, ah, they all laugh. I'm like, wow. She has a special personality. She, yes, he does. And she lights up a room. And yet when they first met, much to Garrett's surprise and disbelief, Patricia was still selling crack. Deep down, I could see that that wasn't what she wanted. Because, you know, you go to her house, her kids are taken care of. Getting, wasn't nobody now getting high or drunk. I mean, they were out. She was taking care of those kids. I'm like, wow. Patricia wanted to make sure that the kids she took in didn't grow up like she had. They played football and baseball, ran track. But sometimes Pat's temper would flare up. Like it did at a Little League baseball game when her son Nakia was eight. And the umpire made a bad call against him. Pat stormed over to home plate and started yelling at the umpire. And they had to go down to the police station. Was it disturbing? I think they had about three charges on her, though. It was like a couple of charges on her. And I was like, when are you going to learn? When you going to You can't do this kind of stuff. I was like, all you had to do was sit back and try to and, 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 uh, talk to the man. He would have told you what, what, what the deal was. Over time and with some help from Garrett, Pat's temper mellowed out. I actually thought society owed me something because my life was so fucked up. I really did. I actually thought. I was like, well, I didn't get a good start in life. You know, shit, I had two kids by a married man at 15. Nobody cared nothing about me. Why, you know, why should I worry about life? You know, this is after I did time in jail for selling drugs and all of that. And I was like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and do something with yourself. So, what happened when everything else failed? When Patricia Williams discovered something she never realized she had? Something that could save her? After the break. So how is it she overcame the struggle? Well, in a way, she had no other choice. By the 1990s, Patricia had done time as a convicted felon, met her husband, given up drug dealing, and was determined to go legit. But one thing kept getting in the way. Well, you know, in this country, they would lock you up and then tell you to get out and pull yourself up by the bootstrap. Then when you do it, they'll pull your criminal background history and still won't give you a job. So that's one of the biggest things that I always work towards is I told my kids don't ever go to jail. Yeah. You, don't, you don't want people judging you by that. It was in the mid-1990s that Patricia enrolled in a welfare-to-work program. She kept trying to get good jobs and at every stop found herself held back by her past. When she was promoted to assistant manager at a Speedway gas station, the company checked her criminal history and fired her. She spent $8,000 to become a medical assistant, but couldn't get hired because she was a convicted felon. That's when a caseworker indirectly led her to something new, a career that doesn't require a criminal background check. 
So I go to this program, work on my GD, get some job training, and she was my worker. And I was sitting there and I would talk to her. And she was like, you are so funny. And I'm like, uh, no, I didn't think I was funny. I would just tell childhood stories. And she literally would be crying and I would be looking like you with a straight face like, what, what the hell is so funny? And she was like, you should be a comedian. I'm like, what, what is that? As she writes in her memoir, it turns out comedy and selling drugs have a lot in common. You need to be quick, work hard, and give people what they want. But it took her a while to learn that lesson. Before she could hit the circuit, she needed a stage name. Forget Rabbit, the nickname she'd been given as a kid. She started going by Miss Pat, the name some neighborhood kids gave her. She worked what she called the Chitlin Circuit in Atlanta. The most popular comic specialized in what Miss Pat calls roach jokes. Super cheap. Uh, roasting people. And super dirty. Talking about sex and... So she followed suit. Then came 2006 when Garrett got a new job and relocated the family to Indianapolis. Miss Pat found Morty's comedy joint, and the club's general manager, Avery Dellinger, gave her advice that would change her life. When I meet Avery in the parking lot outside Morty's, he talks about how much he enjoyed the stories Miss Pat would tell offstage, the shocking yet somehow hysterical tales of her misadventures in Atlanta. Um, I'd say, why don't you talk about that? That's funnier than what you just did on stage. And um, so she just started talking more about growing up um, in a hard life, um, the things that happened to her, and the way she put her own spin on them made them hilarious. And it's, it's definitely material that wouldn't be um, copied by anybody. And that was, You can't copy it because it actually happened. Yes, it's, it's her own personal story. Miss Pat took Avery's cue and began studying masters of comedic storytelling. Richard Pryor. And landing at the airport in Nairobi, man, just fill your heart up. You see, you look at all the black people. And you realize that people are the same all over the world. Because people in Africa fuck over your luggage just like people in New York. Chris Rock. I used to work at uh, Red Lobster. I used to work at Red Lobster in uh, Queens Boulevard. I was... Um, Oh, I served you. Good, good. Uh, and long before his very public downfall, Bill Cosby. I remember I was a hero in my neighborhood because I had a hernia. <laughs> because I was skinny, I used to go around picking people up, just picking up kids, just to show how strong I was. So my mother comes out and says, you know, you keep picking people up, you're going to get a hernia. So I thought it was a present. Bill would take you through a story and connect another story and put it all together, and you're like, wow. You know, when I moved here, I didn't even know comedy had a, 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 a beginning, middle, and end. I thought you just got up there and talked. As Miss Pat's career began taking off, she was able to achieve a dream she'd had ever since moving to Indianapolis. You know, it was crazy because when we first moved to Indianapolis, we moved into an apartment, and I wanted to move in that subdivision. And my husband was like, we can't afford that. And I was like, yes, we can. And for two years, I rode through there. And my, when they, I had my kids in the car, they was in middle school. And they was like, why you keep riding through this neighborhood? I said, because we're going to live here. And then my daughter was like, well, Poppy said we can't afford it. I said, don't, don't ever say what you can't do. You can do anything you want to do. Then she was like, well, how are we going to do it? I said, I bet you we move here. Then next year we build a house. A happy ending, right? Except that's not how life works. You can't just flip a switch and turn off what years of abuse and misery can do to you. 
And for Patricia Williams, that battle between the girl called Rabbit and the performer known as Miss Pat played out on stage one night at Morty's. And it wasn't pretty. It happened about four years ago, and the whole thing was caught on video. The person who agrees to show me the video is Chris Bowers, one of the owners of Morty's, and a huge Miss Pat booster. When I meet Chris at the club, he calls this thing, quote, the greatest video of all time. Why is that the greatest video of all time? Once you see it, you cannot, like, I have said that to people, like, comedian, like, national. And when you see it, you're like, oh, that was real. When the subject of the video comes up, I see Miss Pat tightened up for maybe the first time since I've been with her. And when Chris invites me over to his apartment to watch it, Miss Pat says, nah, she's good. She'll catch up with us later. But Miss Pat's kids come with us. They want to see the video again. Before we watch, Chris gives us the backstory. A hack comedian named Derek brought his friends to an open mic night. They got rowdy before the show. Miss Pat asked him to quiet down, and Derek didn't take it so well. And this dude goes, bitch, you don't know me. I'm one of the comedians. His lack of respect cuts into her. She's furious but keeps it to herself, at least at first. Chris tells us we need to see the next part for ourselves. He hits play. (laughs) You'll see Derek saunter on stage. He rambles, says he's been drinking. Then he starts slamming the crowd. Everybody, this motherfucker ugly. Got the ugly crew over here, the ugly bullets over here. Got these ugly ass white honkers over here. As we all watch, we agree that Derek's routine, if you can call it that, is wretched. Also, it takes forever. So anyway, when Derek's seven minutes are up, it's Miss Pat's turn. Everybody, please give it up for Miss Pat! Miss Pat paces the stage, and it's abundantly clear that she is mad. She immediately lays into Derek. Miss Pat is wearing this curly wig. She tears it off and throws it to the ground. Your friends ain't gonna help you. If you bad, come up here, motherfucker. You ain't seen you bad, motherfucker. I've been shot two times and hit by a dumb truck. I wish a nigga would. So then Derek approaches her. Bad idea. She launches herself on top of him. Needless to say, the club erupts. Derek's girlfriend is screaming. As I'm watching this clip, my jaw somewhere between my ankles and the floor, Chris points out the moment where Miss Pat, as he puts it, turns a switch. We watch as Miss Pat is led away from the fight. Before she disappears from view, we hear her call out something. It's too faint for you to hear it, but what she says is, I'm sorry, y'all. Now, maybe you see why Miss Pat didn't like when we started talking about this video. In fact, her manager told her she shouldn't let it get out. He said I looked like I was going to kill the dude. He said, he, he said I turned into something else. So, and it's, hard, it's already hard enough as a woman to get booked, and it's real hard as a black woman. And I'm, I'm not playing the race card. I mean, to do mainstream clubs, and I finally have my foot in the mainstream club. I don't want to be known for a video. I want you to know me for my talent, not because I got to fighting. I don't want to blow up because I got to fighting on the internet. Miss Pat's manager says that what you see on this video isn't the woman who, against all odds, forged ahead with a comedy career and built her family a six-bedroom house in the suburbs. And though she's very upfront about her past, 
She'd rather keep it in the past, unless it's in her set. And that's one of the biggest things about a Miss Pat show. You're sitting there, listening to these amazing, often horrific stories, and yet you're laughing. When I call up director Lee Daniels to talk about Miss Pat, he asks me about that. Did you find yourself laughing at what she said? Yes, and then I want to slap myself and say, wait, should I be laughing here? Okay, exactly. And that's the, that's the irony of it all and the beauty of it all. And that she's able to find humor in all of that is, um, is what comedy's about. Back at the house in the suburbs, Miss Pat says there are people who don't see the humor in her past. They don't laugh at all. You know, I've had people, like I told you, walk out of the show crying. I'm so sorry you didn't do that. I said, I am 45 years old. I'm over it. And I hope whatever makes you cry about my story, you get over it, too. So I don't want no pity. I don't want you feeling sorry for me because I grew up poor and black in America. (laughs) It's a lot of people that grew up. And and my story is not all black America story. It's It's just one person's story. It's my story. And as for what comes next in that story, well, Miss Pat has some ideas. As we drive back from her latest set at Morty's, she talks about the future. She's got high hopes for the sitcom and for her book. She says she's appreciated what Indianapolis has done for her, but what she'd really love is to move back south and get a nice big house. Me, I'm a risk taker. I'd be like, hold on, I'm gonna go and try that right here. If this don't work out, then I come back. I mean, I, I just feel like if you don't try, how do you know what you can't do if you don't try? Just try. Like I said, I'm going to move back to Atlanta. I'm going to buy me a $900,000 house. He's like, how are you going to do that? I say, watch me. If you haven't already, subscribe to Edge of Fame on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Edge of Fame is a production of The Washington Post and WBUR. Boston's NPR station. This episode was produced by Caitlin O'Keefe and edited by Jessica Alpert and Iris Adler. Sound designed by John Parati and Paul Vikas. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert, Jessica Stahl, and me. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Edge of Fame, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Edgers podcast. If you do the Twitter thing, you can find me at Jeff Edgers. That's Jeff spelled G-E-O-F-F. See you next week. Thank you.